0: Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at SapphirePlanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now in The Sapphire Planet. The War of the Worlds is an episode of the American Radio Drama Anthology series, The Mercury Theater, On the Air. It was performed as a Halloween episode of the series on Sunday, October thirtieth, 1938, and aired over the Columbia Broadcasting System Radio Network. Directed and narrated by actor and future filmmaker Orson Welles, the episode was an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, which was written in 1898. It became famous for allegedly causing mass panic, although the reality of this mass panic is disputed, as the program had relatively few listeners. The first two-thirds of the one-hour broadcast was presented as a series of simulated news bulletins, which suggested an actual alien invasion by Martians was currently in progress. Compounding the issue was the fact that the Mercury Theater on the air was a sustaining show without commercial interruptions, adding to the program's realism. Popular legend holds that some of the radio audience may have been listening to Edgar Bergen and tuned into the War of the Worlds during a musical interlude, thereby missing the clear introduction of that show was a drama. But recent research suggests this only happened in rare instances. In the days following the adaptation, there was widespread outrage in the media. The program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some newspapers and public figures, leading to an outcry against the perpetrators of the broadcast and calls for regulation by the Federal Communications Commission. The episode secured Wells' fame as a dramatist. H.G. Wells' original novel tells the story of an alien invasion of Earth. The novel was adopted by Howard E. Koch for the 17th episode of the CBS radio series The Mercury Theater on the Air, broadcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Sunday, October 30th, 1938. The program's format was a simulated live newscast of developing events. The setting was switched from 19th century England to contemporary Grover's Mill, an unincorporated village in West Windsor Township, New Jersey, in the United States. The first two-thirds of the hour-long play is a contemporary retelling of events of the novel, presented as news bulletins, interrupting other programming. I had convinced the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening, Wells later said and would be broadcast in such a dramatized form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time, rather than a mere radio play. This approach was similar to Ronald Knox's satirical newscast of riot overtaking London broadcast by the BBC in 1926, which Wells later said gave him the idea for the War of the Worlds. A 1927 drama aired by Adelaide station 5CL depicted an invasion of Australia via the same techniques and inspired reactions similar to those of the Wells broadcast. He was also influenced by the Columbia Workshop presentations, The Fall of the City, a 1937 radio play in which Wells played the role of an omniscient announcer and Air Raid, a vibrant as-it-happens drama starring Ray Collins that aired October 27, 1938. Wells had previously used newscast format for Julius Caesar, which aired September 11, 1938, with H.V. Cattleborn providing historical commentary throughout the story. The War of the World broadcast used techniques similar to those of the March of Time, the CBS News documentary and dramatization radio services. Wells was a member of the program's regular cast, having first performed on the March of Time in March 1935. The Mercury Theater on the Air and the March of Time shared many cast members, as well as sound effects chief Ora Day Nichols. Wells discussed his fake newscast idea with producer John Houseman and assistant director Paul Stewart. Together they decided to adapt a work of science fiction. They considered adapting M.P. Shields' The Purple Cloud and Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World before purchasing the radio rights to the War of the Worlds. Houseman later wrote that he suspected Wells had never read it. Howard Koch had written the first draft for the Mercury Theater broadcast, Hell on Ice, 17, and Around the World in 80 Days. Monday, October 24th, he was reassigned to re-script The War of the Worlds for broadcast that following Sunday night. Tuesday night, 36 hours before rehearsals were to begin, Koch telephoned Hausman in what the producer characterized as deep distress. Koch said he could not make The War of the Worlds interesting or credible as a radio play. A conviction echoed by his secretary, Ann Froelich, a typist and expiring white writer that Hausmann had hired to assist him. With only his own abandoned script for Laura Dune to fall back on, Hausmann told Koch to continue adapting the Wells fantasy. He joined Koch and Froelich, and they had worked on the script throughout the night. On Wednesday night, the first draft was finished on schedule. On Thursday, associate producer Paul Stewart held a cast reading of the script, with Koch and Hausman making necessary changes. That afternoon, Stewart made an acetate recording with no music or sound effects. Wells, immersed in rehearsing the Mercury Stage production of Danton's Death, scheduled to open the following week, played The Record, The Record at an editorial meeting that night in his suite at the St. Regis Hotel. After hearing Air Raid on the Columbia Workshop earlier that same evening, Wells viewed the script as dull. He stressed the importance of inserting news flashes and eyewitness accounts into the script to create a sense of urgency and excitement Houseman and Koch and Stewart reworked the script that night increasing the number of news bulletins and using the names of real places and people wherever possible Friday afternoon the script was sent to Davidson Taylor executive producer for CBS and the network legal department their response was that the script was too credible and its realism had to be toned down as using the names of actual institutions could be actionable, CBS insisted upon some 28 changes in phrasing. For example, Under protest and with deep sense of grievance, we changed the Hotel Biltmore to a non-existent park plaza, Transamerica to Intercontinent, the Columbia Broadcast Building to Broadcast Building. Houseman wrote, The United States Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C. was changed to The Government Weather Bureau. Princeton University Observatory to Princeton Observatory. McGill University to Macmillan University. New Jersey National Guard to State Militia. United States Signal Corps to Signal Corps. Langley Field to Langham Field. And finally, St. Patrick's Cathedral was changed to the Cathedral. On Saturday, Stewart rehearsed the show with the sound effects team, giving special attention to crowd scenes, the echo of cannon fire, and the sound of boat horns in New York Harbor. Early Sunday afternoon, Bernard Herman and his orchestra arrived in the studio, where Wells had taken over production of that evens program. To create the role of reporter Carl Phillips, actor Frank Riddick went into the record library and played the recording of Herbert Morrison's radio report of the Hindenburg disaster over and over. Working with Bernard Herman and the orchestra that had a sound like a dance band fell to Paul Stewart, the person Wells would later credit as being largely responsible for the quality of the War of the Worlds broadcast. Wells wanted the music to play for an unbelievably long stretches of time. The studio's emergency fill-in-a-solo piano playing Debussy and Chopin was heard several times. As it played on and on, Houseman wrote, its effect became increasingly sinister, a thin band of suspense stretched almost beyond endurance. That piano was the neatest trick of the entire show. The dress rehearsal was scheduled for 6 p.m. Our actual broadcasting time, from the first mention of the meteorites to the fall of New York City, was less than 40 minutes, wrote Hausman. During that time, men traveled long distances, large bodies of troops were mobilized, Cabinet meetings were held, savage battles fought on land and air, and millions of people accepted it, emotionally, if not logically. The War of the Worlds starts with a paraphrase of the beginning of the novel, updated to contemporary times. The announcer introduces Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite compliance, men went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crossley service estimated that 32 million people were listening on radios. Detailed descriptions of an alien invasion are placed within a framework of long and dull musical interludes, making up the first two-thirds of the program. After a period of silence comes the voice of announcer Dan Seymour. You are listening to the CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre of the Air in the original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. The last third of the program is a monologue and dialogue. Wells returns as Professor Pearson, describing the aftermath of the attacks. The story ends and does the novel, with the Martians falling victim to earthly pathogenic germs, to which they have no immunity. After the play, Wells assumes his role as host and tells listeners that the broadcast was all a Halloween concoction, the equivalent of saying, he says, of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Popular mythology holds this disclaimer was hastily added to the broadcast at the insistence of CBS executives as they became aware of panic inspired by the program. In fact, at the station break, network executive Davidson Taylor attempted to prevent Wells, who had added the speech at the last minute from reading it on air because it could have opened the network up to legal liabilities. But Wells being Wells, he delivered it anyway. Radio programming charts in Sunday newspapers listed the CBS drama The War of the Worlds. The New York Times for October 30, 1938, also included the show in its leading events of the week and published a photograph of Wells with some of the Mercury players, captioned, Tonight's show is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Announcement that The War of the Worlds is a dramatization of work of fiction were made on the full CBS network at four points during the broadcast October thirtieth, 1938. At the beginning, before the middle break, after the middle break, and at the end. The middle break was delayed 10 minutes to accommodate the dramatic content. Another announcement was repeated on the full CBS network that same evening at 10.30 p.m., 11.30 p.m., and midnight for those listeners who tuned in on Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tonight and did not realize that the program was merely a modernized adaptation of H.G. Wells' famous novel War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact that, which was made clear four times on the program, that while the names of some American cities were used, all as, as in all novels and dramatizations, the entire story and all of its incidents were fictitious what about the public reaction producer John Houseman noticed that at about 8.32 p.m. eastern time CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor received a telephone call in the control room creasing his lips Taylor left the studio and returned four minutes later pale as death He had been ordered to interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast immediately with an announcement of the program's fictional content. But by that time, actor Ray Collins was choking on the roof of the broadcast building and the break was less than a minute away. Actor Stefan Schnabel recalled sitting in the anterior room after finishing his on-air performance. A few policemen trickled in, then a few more. Soon the room was full of policemen and a massive struggle was going on between the police, page boys, and CBS executives who were trying to prevent the cops from busting in and stopping the show. It was quite the show to witness. During the sign-off theme, the phone began ringing. Houseman picked it up and furiously and furious callers announced he was the mayor of a Midwest town where moms were in the streets. Houseman hung up quickly, for we were off the air now, and the studio door had burst open. The following hours were a nightmare. The building was suddenly full of people in dark blue uniforms. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado, while network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all scripts and records of the broadcast. Finally, the press was let loose upon us, raving for horror. How many deaths had we heard of, implying that we knew of thousands? What did we know of the fatal stampede in Jersey Hill, implying that it was one of many? What traffic deaths? The, di- the ditches must be choked with corpses." The suicides. Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It was all quite vague in my memory and quite terrible. Paul White, head of CBS News, was quickly summoned to his office. And there, bedlam reigned, he wrote. The telephone switchboard, a vast sea of light, could only handle a fraction of incoming calls. The haggard Wells sat alone and despondent. I'm through, he lamented. Washed up. I didn't bother to reply to this highly inaccurate self appraisal. I was too busy writing explanations to put on the air, reassuring the audience that it was safe. I also answered my share of incessant telephone calls, many of them taking a, a, from as far away as the Pacific coast. Because the crowd of newspaper reporters, photographers, and police, the cast left the CBS building by the rear entrance. Aware of the sensation the broadcast had made, but not its extent, Wells went to the Mercury Theater, where an all-night rehearsal of Danton's death was in progress. Shortly after midnight, one of the cast, a late arrival, told Wells about the news about the War of the Worlds being flashed in Times Square. They immediately left the theater, and, standing on the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street, they read the lighted bulletin that circled the New York Times building. Orson Welles causes panic. Some listeners heard only a portion of the broadcast, and in the tension and anxiety prior to World War II, mistook it for a genuine news broadcast. Thousands of those people rushed to share the false reports with others or called CBS, newspapers, or the police to ask if the broadcast was real. Many of the newspapers assumed that this large number of phone calls and scattered reports of listeners rushing about or even fleeing their homes proved the existence of mass panic, though such behavior was never widespread. Future Tonight Show host Jack Parr had announcing duties that night for Cleveland CBS affiliate WGAR as panic listeners called the studio. Parr attempted to calm them on the phone and on the air by saying, The world is not coming to an end. Trust me, when have I ever lied to you? When the listeners started charging Parr with, Covering up the truth, he called WGAR station manager for help. Oblivious to the situation, the manager advised Parr to calm down, saying it was all a tempest in a teapot. In Concrete, Washington, phone lines electricity suffered a short circuit at the Superior Portland Cement Company's substation. Residents were unable to call neighbors, family, or friends to calm their fears. Reporters who had heard of the coincidental blackout sent the story over the news wire, and soon Concrete Washington was known worldwide. Amazingly, Wells continued with the rehearsal of Danton's death, scheduled to open November 2nd, leaving shortly after dawn, October 31st. He was operating on three hours of sleep when CBS called him to a press conference. He read a statement later printed in the newspapers nationwide and took questions from the reporters. Question. Were you aware of the terror such a broadcast would stir up? Wells, definitely not. The technique I used was not original with me. It was not even new. I anticipated nothing unusual. Question. Should you have toned down the language of the drama? Wells, no. You don't play murder in soft words. Question. Why was the story changed to put in names of American cities and government officers? Wells. H.G. Wells used real cities in Europe, and to make the play more acceptable to American listeners, we used real cities in America. Of course, I'm terribly sorry now. Within three weeks, newspapers had published at least 12,000 500 articles about the broadcast and its impact, although the story dropped off the front pages after a few days. Even Adolf Hitler referenced the broadcast in a speech in Munich on November 8th in 1938. Wells later remarked that Hitler cited the effect of broadcast on the American public as evidence of "...the corrupt condition and decadent state of affairs." in Democracy. Later studies indicate that many missed the repeated gnosis about the broadcast being fictional, partly because the Mercury Theater on the Air, an unsponsored CBS cultural program with a relatively small audience, ran at the same time as the NBC Red's network popular Chase and Sanborn Hour, featuring ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. At the same time, many Americans assume that a significant number of Chase and Sanborn listeners changed stations when the first comic ste- sketch ended, and the music numbers by Nelson Eddy began, thereby turning, tuning into The War of the Worlds after the opening announcements. But some historians, after studying hundreds of letters from people who heard The War of the Worlds, as well as contemporary audiences' surveys, conclude that very few people frightened by Weld's broadcast had turned, tuned out Bergen's program. All the hard evidence suggests that the chase in Sanborn Hour was only a minor contributing factor to the Martian hysteria. In truth, there was no mass exodus from Charlie McCarthy to Orson Welles that night. Because the broadcast was unsponsored, Wells and company could schedule breaks at will rather than arranging them around advertisements. As a result, the only notices that the broadcast was fictional came at the start of the broadcast and about 40 and 55 minutes into it. A study by the Radio Project discovered that fewer than one-third of frightened listeners understood the invaders to be alien. Most thought they were listening to reports of German invasion or natural catastrophe. People were on the edge. For the entire month prior to the War of the Worlds, radio had kept the American public alert to the ominous happenings throughout the world. The Munich crisis was at its height. For the first time in history, the public could tune in to their radios every night and hear, boot by boot, accusations and accusations, threat by threat, the rumblings that seem inevitably to be leading to war. CBS News Chief Paul White wrote that he was convinced that the panic induced by the broadcast was a result of the public suspense generated before the Munich Pact. Radio listeners had their emotions played upon for days. Thus they believed the Wells production, even though it was specifically stated, that the whole thing was fiction. Much time has passed since that day, And historical content has been added to the mix. Historical research suggests that panic was far less widespread than newspapers had indicated at the time. The panic and mass hysteria so readily associated with the War of the Worlds did not occur on anything approaching a nationwide dimension. Researchers wrote in 2003... there is a growing consensus among sociologists that the extent of the panic was greatly exaggerated. The position is supported by contemporary accounts. In the first place, most people didn't hear the show, said Frank Stanton, later president of CBS. Of the nearly 2,000 letters mailed to Wells and the Federal Communication Commission after the War of the Worlds, currently held by the University of Michigan and the National Archives and Records Administration. Roughly 27% came from frightened listeners or people who who witnessed any panic. After analyzing those letters, it was concluded that although the broadcast briefly misled a significant portion of its audience, very few of those listeners fled their homes or otherwise panicked. The total number of protest letters sent to Wells and the FCC is also low in comparison with other controversial radio broadcasts of the period, further suggesting the audience was small and the fright severely limited. 5,000 households were telephoned that night in a survey conducted by the C.E. Hooper Company, the main radio rating service of the time. Only 2% of the respondents said they were listening to the radio play and no one stated they were listening to a news broadcast. 98% respondents said they were listening to other radio program. The Chase and Sanborn Hour was the long most popular program in that time slot or not listening to the radio at all. Further shrinking the potential audience, some CBS network affiliates including some in large markets like Boston's WEEI, had preempted the Mercury Theater off the air in favor of local commercial programming. Ben Gross, radio editor for the New York Daily News, wrote in his 1954 memoir that the streets were nearly deserted as he made his way to the studio for the end of the program. Producer John Houseman reported that the Mercury Theater staff was surprised when they were finally released from CBS Studios to find life going on as usual in the streets of New York. The writer of a letter the Washington Post published later likewise recalled no panicked mobs in the Capitol's downtown streets at the time. The supposed panic was so tiny as to be practically immeasurable on the night of the broadcast. Historians have written, Almost nobody was fooled. According to some historians, the most common response said to indicate a panic was calling the local newspaper or police to confirm the story or seek additional information. Isn't this is an indicator that people were not generally panicking or hysterical? The call volume perhaps is best understood as an altogether rational response. Some New Jersey media and law enforcement agencies received up to 40% more telephone calls than normal during the broadcast. Orson Welles was to said was have said to have said to a friend and mentor Roger Hill on february twenty second, nineteen eighty three, quote, What a night. After the broadcast, as I tried to get back to the Saint Regis where I where I was living, I was blocked by an impassioned crowd of newspeople looking for blood, and the disappointment when they found I wasn't hemorrhaging. It wasn't long after the initial shock that Whatever public panic and outrage there was vanished. But the newspapers for days continued to feign fury. As it was late on Sunday night in the Eastern Time Zone, where the broadcast originated, few reporters and other staff were present in newsrooms. Most newspaper coverage thus took the form of associated press stories, Which were largely anecdotal aggregates of reporting from various bureaus, giving the impression that panic had indeed been widespread. Many newspapers led with the AP story the next day. On November 2, 1938, the Australian Age characterized the incident as mass hysteria and stated that never in the history of the United States had such a wave of terror and panic swept the continent. Unnamed observers quoted by the Australian age commented that the panic could have only happened in America. Editorialists chastised the radio industry for allowing this to happen. This response may have reflected newspapers' publishers' fears that radio, to which they had lost some of their advertising revenue that was a scarce enough during the Great Depression, would render them obsolete. In the War of the Worlds, they saw an opportunity to cast aspersions on the newer medium. The nation as a whole continues to face the danger of incomplete, misunderstood news over a medium which has yet to prove that it's competent to perform the news job, wrote editor and publisher, the newspaper's industry trade journal. You can't have a outrage from the newspaper without William Randolph Hearst stepping in. William Randolph Hearst's papers called on broadcasters to police themselves lest the government step in, as Iowa Senator Clyde L. Herring proposed a bill that would have required all programming to be reviewed by the FCC prior to broadcast. He never actually introduced it. Others blamed the radio audience for its credulity, noting that any intelligent listener would have realized the broadcast was fictional. The Chicago Tribune opined that it would be more tactful to say that some members of the radio audience are a little trifle mentally and that many a program is prepared for their consumption. Other newspapers took pains to note that anxious listeners had called their offices to learn whether Martians were really attacking. The anecdotal nature of such reporting makes it difficult to objectively assess the true extent and intensity of panic. Historians seem to see this as more evidence that the panic was predominantly a creation of the newspaper industry. In a study published in the book form as the invasion from Mars in 1940, Princeton professor Hadley Cantrill calculated that some 6 million people heard the War of the Worlds broadcast. He estimated that 1.7 million listeners believed the broadcast was actual news bulletins and of those, 1.2 million people were frightened or disturbed. Media historians have since concluded, however, that Cantrell's study has serious flaws. Its estimates of the program's audience is more than twice as high as any other at the time. Cantrell himself conceded this, but argued that unlike other estimates, his estimates had attempted to capture the significant portion of the audience that did not have home telephones at that time. Since those respondents were contacted only after the media frenzy, Cantrill allowed that their recollections could have been influenced by what they read in the newspapers. Claims that Chase and Sanborn listeners who missed the disclaimer at the beginning when they turned to CBS during a commercial break or musical performance on that show and thus, mistook the War of the Worlds for a real broadcast, inflated the show's audience, and ensuing alleged panic are also impossible to substantiate. Apart from admittedly imperfect methods of estimating the audience and assessing the authenticity of the response. Contrail found that he made another error in typing audience reactions. Respondents had indicated a variety of reactions to the program, among them excited, disturbed, and frightened. Yet he included all of them with panicked, failing to account for the possibility that despite their reactions, they were still aware the broadcast was staged. Those who did hear it looked at it as a prank and accepted at it that way. Historians grant that hundreds of thousands were frightened, but calls evidence of people taking action based on their fears as scant and anecdotal. Indeed, contemporary news articles indicate that police call police were swamped with hundreds of calls in numerous locations, but... Stories of people doing anything more than calling authorities mostly involved only small groups. Such stories were often reported by people who were panicking themselves. Later investigations found much of the alleged panic response to have been exaggerated or mistaken. Cantrell's research found that, contrary to what had been claimed, there was no admission for shock. At a Newark hospital during the broadcast, hospitals in New York City, city similarly reported no spike in admissions that night. A few suicide attempts seemed to have been prevented when friends and family intervened, but there was no record of a successful one. A Washington Post claimed that a man died of heart attack, brought on by listeners listening to the program could not be verified. One woman filed a lawsuit against CBS, but it was soon dismissed. The FCC also received letters from the public that advised against taking reprisals. Singer Eddie Cantor urged the commission not to overreact, as censorship would retard radio immensely. The FCC not only chose not to punish Wells or CBS, it barred complaints about the War of the World from being brought up during license renewals. Some would argue Janet Jackson's 2004 wardrobe malfunction remains far more significant in the history of broadcast regulation than Orson Welles' trickery. H.G. Wells and Orson Welles met for the first and only time in late October 1940, two years later, shortly before the second anniversary of the Mercury Theatre broadcast, when they both happened to be lecturing in San Antonio, Texas. On October 28, 1940, the two men visited the studios of KTSA Radio for an interview by Charles C. Shaw, who introduced them by characterizing the panic generated by the War of the Worlds. The country at large was frightened, almost out of its wits. Wells expressed good-natured skepticism about the actual extent of the panic caused by this sensational Halloween spree. Are you sure there was such a panic in America? Or wasn't it your Halloween fun? Wells appreciated the comment. I think that's the nicest thing that a man from England could say about the men from Mars. Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know. It's supposed to show the corrupt conditions and decadent state of affairs in democracy that the war of the worlds went over as well as it did. I think it's very nice of Mr. Wells to say not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it either. When Shaw interjected that there was some excitement that he did not wish to belittle, Wells asked him what kind of excitement. Mr. H.G. Wells wanted to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from a practical joke in which somebody puts over a sheet over his head and says, Boo! I don't think anybody believes that the individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and rush down the hall, and that's just about. What happened? That's a very excellent description, Shaw said. You aren't quite serious in America yet, said Wells. You haven't gotten the war right under your chins and the consequences you can still play with the ideas of terror and conflict. It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. Until it ceases to be a game, Wells said, a phrase Wells repeated. Britain had then been at war with Nazi Germany for more than a year. As the Mercury's second theater season began in 1938, Orson Welles and John Houseman were unable to write the Mercury Theater on Air broadcasts on their own. They hired Howard E. Koch, whose experience in having a play performed by the Federal Theater Project in Chicago, led him to leave his law practice and move to New York to become a writer. Koch was put to work at $50 a week, raised to $60 after he proved himself. The Mercury Theater on the air was a sustaining show, so, in lieu of more substantial salary, Hausman gave Koch the rights to any scripts he worked on. Initially apologetic about the supposed panic his broadcast had called and privately fuming that newspaper reports of lawsuits were either greatly exaggerated or totally fabricated, Orson Welles later embraced the story as part of his own personal myth. Houses were emptying. Churches were filling up. From Nashville to Minneapolis, there was wailing in the streets, and the rendering of garments, he told Peter Bragnanovich years later. CBS 2 found reports ultimately useful in promoting the strength of its influence. It presented a fictionalized account of the panic in a 1957 episode of the television series, television series Studio One and included it prominently in its 2003 celebration of CBS's 75th anniversary as a television broadcaster. The legend of the panic grew exponentially over the following years. It persists because it was so perfectly captures our unease with the media's power over our lives. The New Jersey township of West Windsor, where Grover's Mill is located, commemorated the 50th anniversary of the broadcast in 1988 with four days of festivities, including art and planetarium shows a panel discussion, a parade, burial of a time capsule, a dinner dance, film festivals devoted to H.G. Wells and Orson Wells, and the dedication of a bronze monument to the fictional Martian landings. Howard Koch, an author of the original radio script, attended the 49th anniversary celebration As an honored guest. The 75th anniversary of the War of the Worlds was marked by an international rebroadcast with an introduction by George Takai and an episode of PBS documentary series American Experience.